0: Hello, I'm Terry Schultz and I am Channeling Brussels. Getting newsmakers, movers and shakers to lose the lingo, burst out of the Brussels bubble and have real conversations about critical foreign and security policies shaping our world. It's the rest of the story, beyond the few seconds of sound bites that make it into the news. This episode of Channeling Brussels is brought to you by the Atlantic Council. And this week we're at NATO Headquarters, where everyone is of course gearing up for the two-day summit which is expected to see, in Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg's words, robust debate, primarily over burden-sharing. That's a nice way of describing the tense situation between U.S. President Donald Trump and, well, almost all European allies over their defense budgets. All NATO allies have agreed to, and this is sensitive language, aim to move toward spending 2% of their GDP on defense by the year 2024, At this point, only seven allies other than the U.S. do that, leaving 21 countries a pretty big target for Trump to aim at, in other words. He, however, tends to attack Germany the most. It's the biggest European economy and only spent 1.2 percent this year, agreeing to go up to just 1.5 percent by 2025. The U.S. president is obsessed with this gap, and it's bound to make things awkward this week. Now, I'm absolutely delighted to have as my guest this week, someone who doesn't dodge the tough questions, James Apatherai, who many listeners will remember from his six years as NATO spokesperson. He's now a deputy assistant secretary general for political affairs and security policy. But I don't care what his title is now. I ask him everything that's on my mind for half an hour. And he was a good sport. So here's maybe not everything you wanted to know about the NATO summit, but a lot of it. Hi, James. Thanks for making time at a very busy time for NATO officials. It's a pleasure. Um, I don't think any of us can start whatever we would want to talk about of substance um, for the NATO summit without addressing the stories that come out. It seems daily about the tensions building up ahead of the meeting. Um, Thanks to statements made by. President Donald Trump. And uh, you, I know that one of the things NATO officials say when, when people ask about questions about U.S. commitment is that, yes, but under President Trump, funding has, has increased. Commitments on the ground have remained steadfast. But now you actually hear him talking about possibly pulling troops out of Germany. So doesn't that undercut one of those arguments?
1: Well, first, I haven't, don't think we've actually heard him talk about pulling troops out of Germany. We've seen one report uh, that the Pentagon is looking at various options about redeployment and they do this on a regular basis but I don't want to downplay what you're saying uh, of course we're all concerned about the context we're all concerned about what might come uh, at the summit what we can do is uh, first and foremost focus on the substance and you mentioned a lot of it and that is under President Trump they are doing more in Europe it's also true that the flip side of that is uh, the Europeans and the Canadians are sending more troops to Afghanistan, providing more money for Afghanistan beyond 2020, maybe through 2024. Uh, so doing more also for something that's of a strategic importance to the United States. And and you've heard the Secretary General say this now, I think, uh, more than once. On one of the main concerns that President Trump has, which is defense spending, uh, we are... Turning a corner, uh, defense spending uh, no is no longer falling in any NATO country. It's going up in all NATO countries. It's heading towards uh, 2% in the majority of NATO countries. Uh, over 20% of that is being spent on new equipment in the majority of NATO countries. So even on the burden sharing story, when it comes to cash, when it comes to capabilities, when it comes to contributions to operations. We have a reasonably solid story to tell. All of this to say there's enough substance for a good message. The question is, what will the message be?
0: I've heard him say not only more than once, but probably more than 40 or 50
1: times,
0: (laughs) (laughs) as you well know. Um, But, you know, it doesn't matter if it resonates with me. It doesn't Mm -hmm. seem to be resonating with the White House because President Trump sent letters to eight NATO leaders saying and, and fairly enough saying, hey, you know, you're still not spending and your spending plans don't look like you're spending fast enough to suit me. Uh, So that is, again, uh, building tensions. Um, I read in the Norwegian press today um, that Norway felt threatened by a statement he made pointing out that uh, Norway was the only NATO ally with a border with Russia, which isn't paying, uh, which isn't, uh, you know, hasn't scaled up to 2% yet because, of course, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland all do spend 2%. So... The Norwegian press is playing this as a threat, that you're not going into this meeting with goodwill.
1: Well, again, let's wait and see. I think it's really important for all of us, and I think we all feel this way, not just to look at the tweets uh, and even the messaging.
0: These were letters.
1: (laughs) But there are letters, and that letter, uh, and I have seen uh, at least some of these letters, they're not framed at all in the form of threats. But they, they do say, at least in the ones I've seen, a line which we have heard for a long time and well before Trump, which is, it is impossible to explain to Americans why they're paying 3.6% for defense, why American troops are at a higher state of readiness and capability to come to defend Europe than Europeans in general are to defend themselves. And actually, I've been on the hill. I have heard the same thing from congressmen on both sides uh, of uh, the political spectrum. Why should we? In fact, the way they phrased it, and I'm sure you've heard this as well, is how come we're paying for Europeans' defense while they get free medical care and then one month vacation? I heard that 15 years ago. So the way those letters are framed is very similar uh, to that message. Of course, there's more. And of but course, those are
0: national you. decisions. I'm not defending mm-hmm. any of the underspending, just pointing out that. America, the American government decides how much it will spend, just like the German government depends, decides how much it will spend. So that isn't that the explanation for Americans? Your government decides what your defense budget is.
1: Well, that's the short explanation. But from a NATO point of view,
0: well, you do need it.
1: Most NATO governments <laughs> are underspending on defense, of course and to be honest, my country, Canada, is underspending on defense from the point of view of NATO, and it, that's in two ways. One is these governments all made a pledge, as we say, to spend at least 2% to move towards spending 2% on on defense and 20% of that on new equipment. But we also have to remember that there has been what I consider underspending on defense for a long period after the Cold War. And as a result, like well below 2%. And as a result, our armed forces have become smaller. In many cases, they've become less capable. Uh, They're able to do fewer things. And NATO has been working with these governments, all NATO governments, every year to say, hey, you need to do this and you need to spend that. Otherwise, we don't have the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle to fit together when we need them. And you haven't.
0: And there have been occasions when you needed them and you haven't. Well,
1: exactly. Uh, So for all those reasons, leaving aside the tone and leaving aside the questions of unity, which are very important, But in terms of the basic message that actually more needs to be spent on defense, and it needs to be spent on defense by the European allies and by the Canadians, uh, is one which resonates, I think, everywhere. Let me just say, that's the reason why those governments are now doing it, because they understand that it needs to be done. So my country has increased spending quite substantially. I think 70% it's going up over the next uh, few years. And most European governments, if not all, are spending more. So... It's a message which they have heard, but it's also something they recognize needs to be done for themselves, coming back to where you started.
0: And President Trump, sitting next to the secretary general, said, don't you give me credit for that? And Stoltenberg kind of avoided the question. But do you give Trump credit for that?
1: I'd say it, it
0: reversed. I know when it started reversing, but do you give him yeah. credit for a quicker scale up?
1: I would say he has certainly sharpened the tone. <laughs> Nobody can miss the message. Uh I think, and I speak very personally for myself, it's not a Secretary General talking point, but it is very important that we don't end up in a situation where uh, the United States gets so frustrated that it does start to feel like it needs to take other uh, uh, decisions. That would be a terrible outcome for everyone. Uh, So what we need to do is demonstrate that burdens are being shared fairly. Uh, the Europeans understand that, the Canadians understand that, the Americans understand it, and we're starting to go in the right direction.
0: It's a lot of pressure on the Secretary General to manage all of these, to manage... I mean, those are not just... You know, singular political issues. That's a little, yeah. That's the one eyebrow raise, which um, yeah, people may not may not be able to see. But yeah, I guess that's a good a good explanation. Um, Let me just bring in a couple of other things, and then we'll move on because I actually get tired of talking about the the two percent constantly. I think it obscures a lot of other issues that are very interesting um, and necessary to talk about. But here are a couple, just other. I mean. The, the, the comment about Crimea, we'll see if we will maintain sanctions on Russia over Crimea. I mean, that can't have escaped you um, because John Bolton was asked about it um, as well. And he said, yeah, well, it's not our policy right now. But, you know, he's the president. And I mean, this alliance transformed itself over the annexation, you know, largely over the annexation of Crimea. When the president of the United States says, well, we'll see if you know that's still something we, we think is important, I mean, you can't overlook that. And that, well, that was more than just a tweet.
1: No, that's right. Uh, I mean, Of course, as you know very well, sanctions are EU business and US business, not NATO business. But they're part of the overall approach to Russia. And we think they're a very important part of the approach to Recognizing
0: Russia. Recognizing the annexation of Crimea, it wasn't only about sanctions. It was also, I think, about recognition, wasn't it?
1: Oh, uh, well, I don't know what if the US is at all thinking about recognition of Crimea. Uh, what I do know is that under President Trump, sanctions have actually been increased, not entirely because of him, but because of Congress, uh, and, uh, and there are more sanctions you know, swirling around. But we do believe, and that is a NATO position, that sanctions are an important part of the international toolkit in response to what happened in Crimea. Russia has not pulled back, it has not scaled back, neither in Crimea nor in eastern Ukraine. And I think it's very important for everyone to remember that about 10,000 Ukrainians have died.
0: And continue to die. And
1: continue to die almost every day. Yes. So this is an ongoing hot war with Russian troops fomenting violence in Ukraine. Uh, And I include Crimea in Ukraine like the the rest of us. Uh, So this is a very serious issue and we need to stand united on this.
0: Do you think issues like Ukraine are getting short shrift when you've got comments like this and then not just comments like this, but all the, you know, flurry of comments about the comments about the comments? Don't you think that then we're not actually looking at what's happening in Ukraine?
1: Well, we're about to have a a summit meeting where Ukraine will be very prominently on the agenda and not just Ukraine, but also Georgia, which really does get forgotten. Uh, <laughs> I know
0: this is this is actually your your issue i 'm asking you about all these other things, well, but I will my, get to georgia it 's one of my <laughs>
1: issues uh, and uh, and so I, I, I think that the summit will have an extensive focus on Ukraine, including a meeting with President poroshenko, and a discussion on Ukraine by the twenty nine leaders also with the eu Uh, I expect it to be quite prominent, including because, as we understand, President Trump's heading to Helsinki right afterwards. Uh, So I think allies will be really very interested in this topic. But the bottom line is we need Russia to play by the rules in Europe or there will be no security and stability in Europe. And we need to find ways to encourage them to do that. Uh, Sanctions have really played a part and they send a political signal. They affect the Russian economy. We wish that wasn't the case. But it is actually an effective tool. Uh, And so uh, from a NATO point of view, we consider this to be an important part of our toolbox. And we would like to see them maintained until Russia changes its behavior.
0: And not just about sanctions, but the comment is what he was asked if the U.S. would accept Russia's claim on Crimea. And he said, we're going to have to see. Does that trouble you?
1: The NATO position to which the United States has signed up is we will not recognize Crimea. So that's where we are here in NATO.
0: The annexation of the annexation. of. Sorry, shorthanding. Sorry. That, but everybody <laughs> means everybody knows what you what yes, you mean. Thank you. Um, OK, um, let me just ask you one other question about Trump and then I would like to move on to Georgia, mm. um, among other things. Uh, we've heard from I've heard from sources in the building that it seems like it's really Germany that's in uh, President Trump's sights that that underspending, which is. Truly lamentable, and every, people inside Germany say the same thing that the readiness is is pathetic, and that the spending needs to be increased. There are plenty of German politicians calling for the same. Um, does it seem that the, the, the Trump Merkel dynamic is is so troublesome? Is, is so? Um, I I don't know. Troubled. Th- yeah, troubled. Troubled, mm. troubled. Thank you for a better adjective. Mm. But um, doesn't that hurt the whole alliance? Doesn't that hurt the whole summit? Isn't it? i mean it just isn't productive
1: well i mean these are two of the biggest countries in nato two of the most important countries in nato and we do really want to see of course a strong unity between them and and all the allies and of course the challenges right now between the two countries also relate to trade as you know very well Mm -hmm. with cars with aluminum and uh, and so it it kind of goes beyond nato but bleeds into nato a little bit uh, as well and we try very hard and, and recommend that we keep trade issues away from security issues. That's sometimes harder than it has been uh, in the past. Uh, the bottom line, when it comes to Germany, I mean, Germany contributes a huge amount to this alliance and has, is one of the four framework nations contributing troops in uh, what we call the forward presence in the Baltic states and Poland. And in Afghanistan. They're very (laughs) prominent in Afghanistan. But just to come back to the Baltic states for a moment, I mean, my German friends, and I just heard this last week again, senior diplomats say, if you had asked them five years ago whether you would see a German battle group in the Baltic states, they would have never believed you. For them, this is a huge political gesture. I would add that, uh, as the Secretary General has said, maybe you've heard it before, post-Brexit, three of the four Uh, Countries contributing battle groups to the defense of Europe will be non-EU countries. Uh, The one is Germany. Uh, And so I think we really need to give them credit for what they're doing. When it comes to investment, as you say, they increasingly recognize that they have uh, a lot of work to do. And they're spending more and more. The German government, but also German society wrestles with putting a lot more money into defense very quickly. And they wrestle with it also because of their concern of how it's going to be seen by their neighbors for historical reasons. So I think we have to understand the German thinking process on this. It's understandable that they're a little bit conflicted. But our view is quite clear, and it has two elements. Everyone now trusts Germany. <laughs> and and uh, sometimes we trust them more than they trust themselves. Uh, and second,
0: Or sometimes they hide behind this explanation, because when I've put that mm-hmm. to, for example, a SAKUR, he says, try me. You know, oh, you don't want Germany spending that much money, the mm-hmm. Germans will say sometimes, and he says, try me.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we trust them, and, uh, and we can see where uh, investment, more investment in defense would simply start to, you know, fix some of the more obvious challenges that they have without even any of the other, other concerns that they have. So bottom line is they do need to invest more. They know they need to invest more. They are investing more. Uh, and we really hope that, uh, you know, the two governments can come to a slightly better.
0: But they have announced that by 2024, the Wales date, mm-hmm. um, they're not going to get above you know, I think it was 1.5. Yeah. So, so does that mean between now and however many years President Trump and possibly even a different U.S. president stays in office, you're going to have to deal every single time with this, this hounding on the two percent? Do you think they can they can come to a truce where this is how far we'll get by then? Um, you know, can you live with it? Can we do other things? Can you recognize some of the other things we're doing? Otherwise, we're just going to fight over this forever.
1: I mean, obviously, no one can predict, especially these days, what will happen. What will happen? that I can predict at the summit is that the secretary general will show the heads of state and government a chart showing a steady increase in the overall amount of money being put into We've seen
0: defense. that chart, James.
1: Ah, uh, but there might be a new chart. <laughs> oh,
0: I live in hope. He <laughs> my, loves my heart palpitates yeah, he for likes, a new chart. He likes
1: charts. I think he used to be an <laughs> economics minister or something. <laughs> he, and, did. Yeah, and he He understands these things more deeply than anyone I know. Uh, so he's got lots of charts. They're all accurate, and they portray things in different ways. We were just having a look at them.
0: Okay, so you're uh, hoping that this will ease, ease the debate at least?
1: Well, I think he can legitimately – I know he can legitimately show all the heads there that the decline has been reversed and that there is a steady incremental increase in the amount of money. So I think you've heard this number, uh, that by next year or the end of this year – there will be 80 billion more being put into defense than there would have been prior to the increases that started in 2014. That's actually quite a substantial amount of money. So, you know, we have a good news story to tell if everyone's willing to hear it.
0: And look, I've been dragged back into the spending question that I. No, I, uh, I, I did it, that I profess I get tired of talking mm-hmm. about. Um, let's talk about Georgia just for a moment because I just read an article. Um, you've got, you're going to be inv- inviting Macedonia. Everyone expects that Macedonia will be invited at this summit to open its process, not mm-hmm. to become a full member. And it needs to be the, the distinction between those two things needs to be said. Um, but with Georgia, I always feel bad. And I even know that you and people in your office always feels like <laughs> Georgia is standing there going, what about us? Mm-hmm. Um, because they do contribute. I think the most troops, for example, in Afghanistan of any, non- any non-nagal ally. Country. Yeah, yeah I, I, know, I know that number. I have Georgian friends, mm-hmm. um, but I read an article that said that Georgia could be invited to join NATO um, without the, the disputed areas. Um, is that even possible? Is this something that could work? Is it, is it even something under consideration, or is it just something that's being written about?
1: Uh, I think I can answer this one pretty briefly.
0: And you've had it before, the question before? Uh,
1: well, I've heard of the article, yes. okay. uh, but actually this idea has been kicking around for, for ages, and I think the short answer is no. There is no discussion here of that. Uh, There is no serious discussion of it outside of here, as far as I know. I mean, it's a nice theoretical concept, but I don't think it's realistic. I don't think it has any traction here. Uh, I don't even think the Georgian government has proposed it. Uh, In fact, I'm quite sure they haven't.
0: So why aren't they invited?
1: Well, there are, I think, two, two challenges. One is political and one is practical. The practical challenge is they still do have to pursue reforms. The political challenge is, I'm not telling anyone a secret, it's their neighborhood and the wider Euro-Atlantic context. So the NATO charter says quite wisely that enlargement has to, of course, be something they want, uh, the country joining wants. It has to be something which meets NATO's requirements. They have to meet the standards and it has to contribute to Euro-Atlantic security. And the consensus within NATO is not there on all those issues. And in particular, I think on the last one, there are a number of allies that have real hesitations about what that move would mean now in this context.
0: As they have with many other countries, though, and gotten over them.
1: Right. And they have gotten over them. And one day, they might well get over them with Georgia. And I, of course, hope that day comes as soon as possible. What we can do and what all the NATO countries agree to do, is to work hard with them to meet the standards of membership, so that when the politics are in place, they are, in a practical terms, ready. So the membership action plan, which is you know, a step on the process, and the invitation, uh, that'll come. I don't know when it'll come, but what we can do now is what we can control. And what we can control is reform, and we will support that.
0: And um, do, what will Macedonia bring to the alliance? Why is it a good idea to invite Macedonia at this time? Because there was some backsliding on some of the progress it had made before, um, and it wasn't certain
1: yeah. until
0: then, not just the name issue, but I was told, you know, don't think that's the only reason Macedonia hadn't, you know, wasn't mm. completely teed up for opening its. It's
1: well, I mean, the NATO policy has been very clear, as you know, for many years. Once there is a successful resolution of the name issue, they will be issued an invitation. We never attached more conditionality than that. But we issued that invitation, you know, that condition, when they had reached a certain level of reform. Uh, you quite rightly said that the invitation to open accession talks is not the end of the process. It requires, by the way, successful completion of the process to agree on the name issue. That means so the
0: referendum, are, that right. means yep.
1: Well that's their Parliament, decision. But right. whatever it is that they yep. do, uh, that needs to be successfully resolved. And they will have to pursue reforms. That's not a new condition. It will not stop them from joining, but it means they have to pursue those reforms. So this will be part of our accession talks with them. Uh, there are still reforms, judicial reforms, legal changes that need to be made, improvements to your armed forces, etc and we'll work with them through the accession process and by the way we'll work with them after the accession uh, process is complete and they have joined the alliance so reforms will continue but why is it valuable it's valuable for two reasons it's valuable because uh, internally within that country they have been you know divided in many things but they're not divided on their or not you know they have very very strong support for Joining NATO, joining the EU, this is the thing that brings the country together. And we want to incul- inculcate that, support it. Uh, it's, it's good for their national unity. Also, we want the whole region of the Western Balkans to continue on the path towards uh, Euro-Atlantic integration, to be stabilized and stable within uh, NATO and the European Union. Sometimes NATO is a bit of an easier bite because we don't have the same, you know, long, a key, and list of requirements. Uh, so a country like Albania, for example, I think has really been stabilised within NATO and stable and secure within NATO, even as it works towards its EU membership. Uh, and maybe the same will be the case here.
0: And one could hope for Bosnia as well, who, which is somewhere on its on its um, on its path to both NATO and the EU.
1: Well, we yeah. all hope. Yep. Uh, this is again, an even more, in, in a sense, divided country, and we all know the, the history of it. What NATO has said is, uh, we give you membership action plan. We've already done that, but we're not going to, in essence, let you activate it until certain reforms are made. And now the discussion within NATO is, OK, when do we allow them to start actually, you know, turn the key, get the process going. It is not membership but it is a, a more intensive form of engagement with us to help us prepare them and to help them prepare with our help for our membership. So I don't know when that's gonna happen, but I can say that there is, I think, a growing sense that NATO needs to lean a little bit farther forward at a certain stage to to engage Bosnia also for the same reasons that I mentioned before.
0: And let's just return to Ukraine quickly and then um, we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, Ukraine doesn't always seem to be going in the right direction, the, the direction the EU wants, the direction NATO would like to see in terms of, in terms of internal reforms, in terms of military reforms. Um, but doesn't leaving Ukraine out um, send the wrong message to Russia? Now now the Ukrainians say they do want to join. I mean, that has, has come around. Um what more can you do to help Ukraine? As you say, I think people forget that there's a hot war there. Mm. Um, forget that the monitors who are supposed to be implementing the, you know, the, the Minsk peace agreements are being shot at. Um, it's, the situation has, has not improved and it, it seems people forget.
1: I, I think people forget. And actually you highlight a point which I think we need to almost start with, which is raising the profile of this issue. It has slipped off the headlines. Uh, It's a great source of frustration to the Ukrainians, and I understand why. Uh, Obviously, anyone would. Uh, So that's one issue. We need to keep the spotlight on this issue and on Russian responsibility, because you can cut it any way you want. This would not be happening without Russian troops, Russian money, Russian disinformation, Russian cyber attacks, etc., etc. Russian command and control of these forces. So They are the key to solving this. Uh, So that's the second part, is pressure on Russia. Uh, And that pressure has to include sanctions. Uh, It has to include the political pressure, G8 to G7, uh, uh, that uh, that was imposed. We also need to keep up a dialogue with Russia and explain to them again and again that the key to better relations with us is, or starts with, Uh, them implementing the things they have committed to do Uh, in Donbass and eastern Ukraine. uh, And then, you know, we'll talk about Crimea. They're, you know, quite stubborn about this. But we have not, and until now, uh, (laughs) will not uh, acknowledge uh, their annexation of, of Crimea. So we need to keep up the pressure. And then finally, we need to help Ukraine. And NATO has all sorts of, you know, them very well, Programs and trust funds and staff doing our part to help them uh, sort of transition and stabilize their own territory. It's not about helping them fight the Russians. That's not for NATO to do, but individual NATO countries are playing different roles. So we have to help. What we can't have happen is that this becomes NATO versus Russia in Ukraine. This, I think, is geopolitically an extremely unwise uh, place for anyone to end up. And the Ukrainians don't want that either. Uh, so we have to do our part, and the nations, uh, NATO nations have to do their part, without turning this thing up too high. Uh, when it comes to Ukraine... But then you
0: run the risk of it, you know, you can't turn it up too high, but then if it's on the complete low burner, nobody pays attention to it. Right.
1: So it is a delicate balance of finding the right level of attention, support, political pressure, political engagement, uh, and not doing too much, and certainly never doing too little. So we're trying to find our way.
0: One other quick question. The 430s plan, which is expected to be finally endorsed, although defence ministers took it, I think, as, as far as it as it could go. Um, is this really a realistic plan? Because when I talked to analysts afterwards, you can't get 30 battalions together at the moment, according to most people, even if you could... by 2020 30 battalions moving in 30 days
1: well it's all part of i think it is realistic and it's all part of uh the larger package of decisions that are being taken here for higher levels of readiness uh, so you know our forces can move more quickly but also being able to move them around uh, more easily so you know we're we're looking at uh, a lot of papers as we run up to this summit, and the papers that I just saw are actually not discouraging on this subject. So it's a, it's a reach, but it's doable.
0: Finally, let's just go back to what your hopes are. I mean, everybody hopes that, this, that the summit would come off well. Everybody fears you're going to have another photo like the G7. Mm-hmm. And there's probably not a person who will be hearing this or listening or um, who doesn't know what photo we're talking about. Miracle glowering over President Trump and the others kind of crowded around. Hmm. Um, right now, you've got the Trump-Putin summit scheduled for right after NATO. What are the dynamics heading in? I mean, there have been plenty of, ugh, plenty of articles worried about what Trump will do when he goes there. Does NATO worry about what Trump will do? And, and how are you going to shore up the NATO message that will be you know, following him as he goes to Helsinki?
1: Well, I, I think from our point of view there are actually very useful things for the US and Russia to discuss and i would start with arms control uh, there are major we haven't even
0: talked about that as much as we should yeah, anywhere the, i don't mean today but no, in indeed. general
1: the the whole arms control regime nuclear conventional chemical is on very weak ground right now and you know a number of treaties are expiring or they have just not been implemented or somebody's withdrawn from them. Uh, and major nuclear arms control agreements between the United States and Russia are reaching a certain term. That's right. So having these two countries talk, engage in strategic stability talks, which need to get going uh, a little bit. They've taken a bit of a pause and find ways to extend even agreements that are you know starting to see uh, their sunset,
0: perhaps even adhere to them.
1: Yes, uh, <laughs> and you know there are questions like the Intermediate uh, yes. Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, where there's a dif- difference between the two governments, and uh, where NATO has expressed a lot of concern that Russia is breaking out or yep. potentially breaking out of this extremely and, important treaty,
0: and that the U.S. would react
1: right in a way. So, yeah. you know, having these two countries talk on a really constructive agenda like this. Would be in everyone's interest. So, you know, it's not that, oh, him talking to Putin's a bad idea. We have dialogue with Russia, which actually doesn't deliver yet what we would want. Uh, so we would want a more substantive, more meaningful agenda with Russia. If the United States and Russia can have a meaningful agenda on these kinds of issues which matter to everybody, all the better. And if, and now I speak for myself again, if President Trump is having that discussion with President Putin on the basis of a good, strong NATO summit. His negotiating position is all the stronger. So I think it's in everyone's interest to have a good NATO summit and then a good U.S.-Russia summit.
0: (laughs) That goes without saying, but you really need to deliver a strong, united message.
1: Well, it would help, uh, and we're working on it. I know you are. I have to to (laughs)
0: let you go now so you can do that. Thank you, James. Thank you. That was James Apatharai, famously the former NATO spokesman, now Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Political Affairs and Security Policy. My thanks to James for taking time out of his summit preparations to speak with me. Also thanks to the NATO Audiovisual Unit for recording this for me. Thanks to the Atlantic Council for sponsoring Channeling Brussels, and thanks to you for listening. Join me next time.